So we've got two Bible readings. If you would like to find the Black Bible, it's in the cubby hole in front of you in the seats. If you'd like to follow along, please grab the Bible. <clears throat> and I'm going to get you to turn to page 1240, which is at the back, and that's Revelation 5. And if you want to put your finger in there when you've found it, And then turn it over to page 1105, and that's to Acts 13. And that's the passage that I'll read first. So I'll just wait a moment while you find Acts 13. Acts 13, 1 to 3. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. They were worshipping the Lord and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And then turn back to that first scripture I got you to put your finger in at the back, Revelation 5, page 1240. Then I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and, the sev and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four creatures and elders, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and, and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be the kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. 
Then I looked and heard a voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power for ever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell face down and worshipped. Thank you, Kath. Morning, everyone. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for that great vision of what the new creation will look like with every tribe, nation, tongue and people there. And Father, as we think about diversity, just give us your heart for this world and for all the people of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I do have a um, presentation. Uh, If you can see it on the back wall, you're doing very well. (laughs) And uh, I've put a photo up there, which I suspect you probably can't see. I suspect actually no one here actually knows who that photo is. Uh, If I mention the name Reverend William Walker, just put your hand up if you've heard of him and you weren't here at 8 o'clock. No one. Uh, I'm not surprised. Um, He is the first official missionary that was appointed to come to Australia and reach Aboriginal peoples. He was a Methodist minister from England... And he came out in 1821, so 201 years ago. And in the official documentation of the time, it is recorded that he was appointed to the black natives of New South Wales. And he arrived in the 16th of September, 1821. He was only 21 years of age. And his ministry among the Aboriginal peoples of the day lasted literally only a few years. I think it was three or four years long. Reverend Walker meant well in his endeavours. There's no doubt about that. But in three separate ways, his missionary endeavours to the Aboriginal peoples of the day set a very negative tone uh, because of the way he viewed his mission. He thought three things. Uh, Firstly, that the Aboriginal peoples were descendants of Ham. Now, if you're not familiar with Ham, he's the son of Noah uh, from the story in Genesis. And Noah cursed his son Ham. And there was this belief amongst uh, the people of William Walker's day that the African people, any other black people, and Aboriginal peoples, inclusive in that, were also cursed by God. And because of that, there was this sense of which they were superior to them. Now, secondly, Reverend Walker believed that no one could wander around and be a Christian. He believed that the Aborigines have, and I quote, a senselessly bigoted attachment to the land on which they itinerated. And thirdly, 
He believed it was best to concentrate his efforts on the Aboriginal children. And you have to ask the question, why? Well, it was easier to teach Aboriginal children English than for the missionaries to learn the languages of the Aora First Nation peoples that they're in contact with here in the Sydney Basin. So if you summed up the missionary posture of the first official appointed missionary to the indigenous people of this country, he believed that the black natives were not as good as the British. So to become Christians, it meant to him that they needed to become like us as Western Christians. And for that to happen, the indigenous peoples of the land needed to learn the English language, not the missionaries to learn theirs. In other words, if I can put it in these words, uh, you are below us, you need to become like us, and you need to come to us. Now sadly, Reverend Walker's thoughts and methods were not unique, and they were shared by numerous others in the day. And as you read about the history of missions to our Indigenous brothers and sisters here, not just New South Wales, but across the country, much of it makes for very awkward and very uncomfortable reading. I read it today because it is important that we actually acknowledge and are sorry for the mistakes made by our forebears. And this is absolutely one of them. It would be easy to try and brush it under the carpet, but they need to be acknowledged because they're embarrassingly true and they need to be repented of. And I start this way because today we are in the last week of the Confronting Christianity series and the question that we're looking at is this, does Christianity crush diversity? And you only have to think about the story I've told you about the missionary endeavours amongst our Indigenous peoples of this land to realise that there is a weight to this question. It's not come out of a vacuum. It's come out of real experiences of real people at the hands of missionaries, including the Indigenous people here in Australia. Too often, rather than bringing hope, life and spiritual liberation through the gospel, Western missionaries have unthinkingly sought to also civilise people groups with the gospel according to their cultural backgrounds and ideas. And these are the stories that give rise to the complaint that Christianity crushes diversity. And so that's the question for us today. Does it? Is this necessarily true? And there's two things I want to have a look at, which is firstly the diverse Christian church that we find in the New Testament. And then secondly, I want to think about what is the most inclusive religion in the world? Well, let's think about that first one, the diverse Christian church. And I've got up for us a proof text on diversity. Um, it's a very well-known one. If you're not familiar, it's Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. I'm going to read from verse 26 to give the context. And Paul says this, So in Christ Jesus, you who are all children of God through faith... For all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed, clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, not male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've been sick this week and uh, I'm still recovering from the cold. I'm feeling a lot better, but my voice is the last thing to recover. Now, what this text is saying to us is that when you are in Christ, when you put your faith in him, there is a unity 
that transcends any other barrier that might exist from our cultural backgrounds. And there's this beautiful diversity amongst God's family through what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection. <clears throat> and he says there is neither Jew or Gentile, there's no cultural barrier. Uh, there's neither slave nor free, there's no economic or class barrier. There's neither male or female, there's no um, gender barrier. All of us together are in Christ and we are one. And the first snapshot, I want to give us three from um, the New Testament where you see this reality being played out, was the first reading read by Catherine. If you've got your Bibles there, uh, turn up to Acts chapter 13. And I just want you to look at the description of the leadership in the church at Antioch. Uh, it is fascinating. Now, someone said to me, you just read over the names very quickly as you read the narrative and you don't stop and think about what is the background behind these people. And it's worth noting they're at the church in Antioch, which was the first non-Jewish church in existence. It was planted by people who had fled, fled Jerusalem because of persecution. They'd taken the gospel north of Israel to Antioch. And both Jews and Gentiles for the first time... Thank you, Andrew, you're very kind. <laughs> ...were worshipping together. And in chapter 13, the leadership I mentioned, the first one is Barnabas. Now, Barnabas is the, if I can say, classic insider. He's from headquarters. Uh, he's one of the very first mentioned in the book of Acts. He's a Levite, Jewish, from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas because he was the son of encouragement. He is the insider, you could say. Now, the second person is culturally so different. Simeon called Niger. And Bible commentators believe that he was a dark-skinned North African proselyte to Judaism. And he is there as part of the leadership team. And it's quite possible that this is the Simeon who carried the cross of the Lord Jesus at his death. The third person is Lucius of Cyrene. Not African, not Jewish, but Greco-Roman. And probably from North Africa. The fourth is, I think, the most fascinating, Manian, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And when it says he'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, we're talking about Herod, who beheaded John the Baptist. And when it says he was brought up with him, uh, the commentators understand and the historians understand that he was the foster brother of Herod and would have grown up in the palace with him. And he is now a follower of Jesus and part of the early church leadership team there. And then lastly is Saul, who I think we get so familiar with him, um, but a, a Tarsus-born Jew raised in Jerusalem and who hated the Christians. And he's now there as part of the leadership team. You could not get a more diverse group of people in terms of their racial, their economic, uh, their status, their religion in terms of where they've come from, and they're here all together as one, following the Lord Jesus. Racially, economically, spiritually, socially diverse, yet one in Christ. And that's what the gospel of our Lord Jesus does. It draws people from every background, and it brings them into this uncommon unity. 
Well, second, the Church of Philippi. Now, we looked at this last year in lockdown. I'm just going to go back briefly over it because it is worth noting. Uh, it's in Acts chapter 16, and it's the story in Acts 16 of the birth of the church. And Paul goes there, and the first group of people he meets are some women at the place of prayer, and one of those is Lydia. And we read in Acts 14 that one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Lydia is there, not Jewish background, but seeking to know God, was wealthy, a dealer in purple cloth, had her own home. She is upper class. That's the first person. The second person is this lower class slave girl who was demon possessed. Acts 16, 16, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. And so you've got this, on the first hand, rich upper class woman, and then you've got this downtrodden lady who was a slave, and she is exercised, and everyone believes she also joined the church. And then lastly, a converted Roman jailer. Paul and Silas get thrown in prison, and through their witness in the prison, the jailer is converted. Verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in the cell, fell trembling before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then he and his whole household got baptised. And the story of the church in Philippi finishes this way. Verse 40, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. And so here's another church, the second one we see, that is so diverse. You've got religious seekers. The Roman um, guard would have been probably most likely apathetic, mixed up with the slave girl who was demon-possessed. All of them have come to faith in Christ, been transformed, and all of them together make up this beautiful little house church. Which leads me to the third picture we had, which was the second reading the church in heaven. And when you read the book of Revelation, um, it's a fascinating book. The first three chapters tell you what life is like, if I can say, on the ground. And there's struggles, persecution, along with some heroic faithfulness. And then John gets a vision of what's happening in heaven, and it says heaven opened. And he starts to see the reality of what's taking place in heaven. And four and five have this vision and it finishes with what we saw today. They're all gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the one who is worthy. And they sang a song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you are slain. And with your blood you purchase for God persons from every tribe, language, people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And you can see that verse, every tribe, language, people and nation. Because of Jesus' death, there is no one who cannot access God's favour. 
every language, every tribe, every people, every nation. And there is this rich diversity that makes up the people of God in heaven. That is absolutely beautiful. We saw last week that the book of Revelation tells us that they are there in heaven united by one thing. This unique authoritative message of Jesus and what he's done for all of us. And the message of the gospel is unique. It's absolute and he is the one person, the one God, Jesus Christ, who came for everyone. And everyone, no matter what their background, finds their hope and love and security in him. So that's what we see in the New Testament. The question though is, what do we discover in history? What is the reality? So if the New Testament paints this picture of this diverse church, what is the most diverse religion in history? I've got the wrong actually title up there. And I want to just read you what I've got on the screen. It's hard to read, obviously, on the back wall. If Jesus was right in saying that he's the only one for the world, then you would expect to see this reflected historically within the world. Let me say that again. If Jesus was right in saying that he is the only one for the world, we heard that last week, then you'd expect to see within history that reality played out. Now, what we find is this. Religions in the world historically have typically excluded people, not included people. Because they've said, if you want my religion, you must become culturally like me because typically world religions the religious devotion is inimitably tied up in cultural expression but guess what christianity is the only worldwide religion that is both inclusive and diverse now i'm going to put up at the screen a book it's by a guy called richard borkham and he is a, a great scholar and he wrote this book on world religions and the bible and mission and what he noted was most world religions have most of their followers close to where the religion began. So you think about me with Islam. Basically, most of the followers of Islam live in either the Middle East or Asia. Uh, it's what missiologists call the 40-20 window. It's the, barrier, the, the band that goes around the equator. Buddhism is in Southeast Asia. Hinduism is pretty much confined to India. Now, why is that? Because inevitably, the religion and the culture can't be separated. There's a whole way of life culturally that's been wrapped up religiously in how you practice your beliefs. And so if you're going to become a Buddhist, you end up typically having to take on the culture that's associated with that. Christianity, however, has followers from all around the globe and in even proportion. So here's some stats for you. In terms of the spread of world religions... Borkham has um, pulled the numbers out. Uh, this was about 10 years ago, but I doubt it's changed much. 90% of Muslims live in either the Middle East, North Africa, or Southeast Asia. They basically are not in the north or south of the global world. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India, and effectively to be Indian is to be Hindu and to be Indian. Uh, Hindu is to be Indian. But look at the Christian faith. 
25% live in Europe, 25% live in Central or Southern America, 25% live in Africa, 15% live in Asia, and 13% live in North America. In other words, and this is in the words of uh, Borkham, Christianity is the only major religion that's basically spread out. Almost certainly Christianity exhibits greater cultural diversity than any other religion. Let me sum it up this way. The biblical witness is that the early church was incredibly diverse and the historical witness is that the church is incredibly diverse. The gospel actually doesn't crush diversity, it promotes it. And the reason Christianity doesn't crush diversity is this. Because the gospel speaks to our deepest needs as people made in the image of God. The message of Jesus speaks deeply to all peoples of every culture. It speaks of the need for ultimate purpose, of the need for eternal security, of the reality of guilt and the opportunity for forgiveness, of the need for a second and third chance in life that's found through Jesus Christ of the need to be loved. And the beauty of the gospel is that it can be communicated in a thousand languages to every culture and tribe about the universal truth of Jesus Christ. Christianity celebrates a unity that we have in Christ in the midst of our diversity. And I couldn't help but stop and think, are we a diverse church? Now, it is interesting this morning that we've had two Africans up leading with uh, the two Anglo-Saxon ladies. Uh, very good timing by Dave. And it's interesting, I was talking to Dave uh, about this issue of diversity. And I said to him, Dave, what do you like about our Western white music? <laughs> and you know what he said? He loves the hymns. I said, why do you love the hymns, Dave? Yeah, I mean, you can ask him afterwards. He said, oh, there's a simplicity to them. They're very easy to sing and they've got great words. And I thought to myself, what do we love about Dave's cultural background and what he brings? And the Africans do joy better than anyone I know. And that's what Dave brings us, this beautiful African joy. And I keep saying to him, don't lose that, David, and become a whitey like us. We love it. You see, there's a beauty about diversity. And all of us with our different backgrounds have something beautiful to offer and bring. From our cultural, from our upbringings, from our learnings, and that's the richness of Christian fellowship. And I love what Kat said, if I wasn't part of a church, there's a whole bunch of people I would have never met and never become friends with. And that's the beauty of being part of a church is when it's healthy, you meet people who you wouldn't ordinarily meet. And if I can just encourage you about the dinners for eight or meals at St Matthew's, uh, as Scott put it, um, sign up for it and just find out some random people you're going to go and have dinner with and celebrate that diversity over a meal because one of the most profound ways we celebrate our, our diversity is by breaking bread together. You find out how you really accept people by who comes into your home. 
It's one of the real markers of our acceptance of people is who we actually invite in. A really important question for us is, to what extent are we diverse? And not just at a surface level, that we actually have genuine friendships and relationships with people who are different to us. In all sorts of ways, now it is worth saying, the Northern Beaches is one of the last Anglo-Saxon hotspots in the country. And so we don't have some of the racial diversity that you might have at, say, at Marsden Park, uh, where it's literally the world has come there. But there still is a diversity amongst us in all sorts of ways. And yet it is still easy to stick within your cliques. And I just want to encourage us, as we think about this topic, we need to reach beyond our friendship circles and look out for people who are on the edges and truly be a diverse church. You see, because a healthy church is a diverse church. It's young and old. It's black and white. And every share of colour in between, it's rich and poor, it's upper class and lower class, it's labour voting, it's liberal voting. It's diverse. And it's because the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ has a power to break down barriers and bring people into one beautiful, diverse family together. And so as you think about the question, are we a diverse church, Let's finish by thinking about the mistakes that our forebears made with missions to our First Nations people. Why did Reverend William Walker and others act like him in the mission to Indigenous people here in this country? Well, I take it it's because the early Christian missionaries confused the gospel with Western culture. Instead of a person entering into another person's culture and telling them the story of Jesus in the ideas of that people that they were seeking to reach and their language, they said, no, you come to us, you become like us, and hear about Jesus in our language. But what I told you at the beginning of the message about Indigenous mission in Australia is not the only story that needs to be told about how the Aboriginal peoples of this land have heard the gospel and come to faith in Christ. People like our dear brother Neville Naden and Kathy and Jack and Lil Harradine. Thankfully, there were more thoughtful and less judgmental dissenting voices who have brought the gospel to our Indigenous brothers and sisters here in the land. And over time, as missionaries started to listen and understand the Aboriginal people's story, they came to see that this was a people group who were in this land before Jesus was born. They were in this land before Abraham was born. They were here before Moses was born. Yet they retained a knowledge of God. Like all of us flawed human beings, they did forget some things, they distorted other things, but through all those thousands of years... They never forgot that there was a God who had made this world in which they lived. And I'm quoting here John Harris, who is one of the great missiologists to the Indigenous people of the land. And his book, if you want to understand the mission to Indigenous people, One Blood, is the work to read. But he says, like all of us, they needed Jesus. They needed Emmanuel. They needed God with us. They knew that God was there, but what they needed to know was about Jesus, the one to whom their stories and traditions pointed. 
They needed to come to his cross to receive forgiveness of sins and his resurrection to receive eternal life like all of us do. But instead of thinking that the Aboriginal people were below them and needed to become like them as white missionaries, there were others who started to love them and go to them and seek to understand their languages and communicate the gospel in that language. And here's one great story to finish with that communicates this about the missionaries who knew that God's people are beautifully diverse. John Harris, who wrote One Blood's father, is a man called Len Harris. He was a Bible translator and missionary to the indigenous peoples of this land. And he worked up in the north of Australia. And in North Australia in 1942, and I've got the picture there, he was up in what is called the Roper River Mission Station. Uh, and if you want to have a look, that's it at the back, on the back wall, if you want to see the photo. That's from 1938. And Len Harris, with two talented Aboriginal women, uh, forgive my pronunciation, Neville and Jack and Kathy and Lil, if you're listening, Bija Jinjani and Grace Jimabu, they translated the Gospel of Mark into the Babui language of the Nungu Buyu people. At times, he would often read these translated stories about Jesus to them over a campfire. One night, the great Nanguyabuyu leader, Mardi Marangungung, got up from the fire and quietly disappeared into the night. That night, Mardi began to walk back to his own country, the Nungungbuyu heartland around Rose River, 300 kilometres north. He walked the whole way. In a fleet of dugout canoes... Marty brought 60 people on a two-week journey back down the coast and up the Roper River back to Len Harris at his mission station. And these are Len Harris's words as to what took place. Glimpsing Marty in the firelight, I held my handwritten sheets of paper that Mark's gospel had been translated into. Anam Balaman, Anawalawu, he said, the good story. Uai, it did you Marty replied. Yes, it is true. Sixty people emerged from the shadows to crowd around the fire. Marty had brought them to hear the good news of Jesus Christ in their own language. Urged by the people, I read it over and over again, long into the night. Eventually, Marty came forward and asked to hold in his hand the leaves I had written on. I knew he could not read, said Len. It did jabulu, he said again, it is true. He used to think Jesus was only a white man's God. He said, but now he understood that Jesus was also the God of black people as well. Len Harris asked him what had convinced him that the life of Jesus was true. He looked down at the sheets of paper and looked up at me again and his eyes bright in the firelight. Now I know that Jesus speaks Wumbuyu. The missionaries thought well of them. They loved them. They went to them. And they learnt their languages. And so became like them. And they recognised the beauty and diversity of the Aboriginal peoples and they celebrated it and brought the gospel to them.
The Christian faith doesn't crush diversity when we understand the gospel properly. It celebrates it. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for our many forebears, men and women who have crossed racial and cultural barriers to bring the gospel to us and to others around us, to bring it to this country, to bring it to our indigenous brothers and sisters. May we be like them, ready to go to others, to listen, to learn, to love, to become like so that we can share the great story of Jesus with them. And may we here be a diverse church here at St Matthew's that loves all who come. We pray in his name. Amen.